Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. What are you pursuing in life? Not what would you say or what would you tell the person next to you, not sort of the correct theological answer, but what's really going on in your heart. When you look at your life, what is it a pursuit of? What is important to you? What are you passionate about? What are your goals? Not the goals you would tell the person next to you, but, but what do you sacrifice for? What do you spend your time and your energy and your uh, money pursuing? What stops you from pursuing Jesus with your whole heart? If you're like me, there, there are two things that get in the way, two big categories of things. One, other pursuits, right? All of these other loves that we have. And two, we're afraid. We're afraid that, that Jesus is, is somehow going to disappoint us. That maybe we'll miss out on something good in life if we spend our lives pursuing Him. Well, Ruth, in Ruth chapter 3, recklessly pursues her Redeemer. Even at the potential cost 
of her reputation because of her confidence of who he is. So what we're going to look at this morning, this morning we're going to look at, at Ruth's reckless pursuit of her Redeemer. And you, you can see our outline, it's in the bulletin, uh, on, on the back of the bulletin. And uh, two main points, that the reckless pursuit of Jesus is it, not stifled by the concerns of this world. And then two, the reckless pursuit of Jesus entrusts those concerns into Jesus' hands. Because he will protect your reputation and he will provide the rest that you need. Now remember where we are in the story. Uh, Naomi, an Israelite widow, living with Ruth, her Moabite widowed daughter-in-law. Uh, they live now in the land of Bethlehem as widows for probably about seven weeks. Ruth has been gathering grain in the field of a kind man named Boaz. Boaz happens to be a relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, Naomi has a plan for finding rest for Ruth. Like many a good mother, Naomi has a plan to find a husband for Ruth in one of the local wealthy bachelors. But the key word here is actually rest. See, Naomi wants to give her daughter rest, according to verse 1. And, and we know what rest is. Maybe you've experienced rest. You've, you've come home from a long, hard day at work. You've, you've sat down on your couch. You've taken a deep breath. Maybe you read, read the newspaper. Maybe, maybe you read a good book. Whatever it is that you enjoy. And there's nothing there to disturb you. I haven't experienced that recently. Four little boys. It, that doesn't quite happen like that. But maybe some of you know what that's like. You get home from work and you can, you can sigh. Because the cares of the day are, are, are gone. Well, rest in the Bible is really a theologically loaded word. Rest means your every need is provided for. It means you have no worry of, of enemies to attack you. Rest is what God promised to give Israel in the Exodus. He promised to bring them out of the land of Egypt and give them rest in a land, rest from their enemies. Rest is what Israel was called to do on the fourth, uh, in the fourth commandment. The seventh day was to be a day of rest, a day of enjoying the rest that God had given to his people. Rest has this sense of repose, this sense of security, this sense of peace. That's what Naomi wants for Ruth. Rest. And of course it's a noble desire. It's a good desire. But Naomi's plan for Ruth's proposal is a little awkward. Look at verses 3 and 4. Naomi says, Wash therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. How are we to understand Naomi's plan? In fact, almost every word, every phrase in what Naomi says here can be understood in multiple ways. First, she starts out telling her to wash and anoint herself and put on her cloak. 
And actually, one view of, of this is that Naomi is telling Ruth, look, go get all dolled up, right? Make yourself as attractive as possible, and, and convince Boaz, if I can put it delicately, right, to elope that very night. That's what some people think. Naomi is encouraging here. There's actually another way of seeing it, though. And that is, uh, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, King David actually goes through these same three actions. He washes, he anoints himself, himself, and he puts on his cloak. And there, for King David, it's actually him ending his period of mourning. See, it could be that Naomi is here suggesting to Ruth that she should stop mourning for the loss of her husband, Malon who had died probably only a few months earlier. So Naomi is calling Ruth to, to stop the mourning rituals because it's time to move on. And yet there is a little ambiguity here. What is Naomi actually saying? Well, even if it's not as bad as some take it to be, the rest of Naomi's instructions, again, they remain ambiguous and filled even with a little bit of double entendre. Right? Ruth is to go at night in secret, wait for Boaz to lie down and sleep, uncover his feet, lie down, and then wait for him to make the next move. Now, as seedy as this is in English, it's actually even more so in Hebrew. <laughs> because the, the word feet in Hebrew can be a euphemism for another part of the anatomy. And to uncover and to lie with someone are euphemisms for sexual activity. And so the writer of Ruth, I think, loves to, to tease us a little, to lead us on, so that we're curious to find out what's going to happen next. Will Ruth the Moabite act like the mother of the Moabites? You remember the mother of the Moabites? We talked about her a few weeks ago. The mother of the Moabites got... Her father drunk at night so that she could bear a child by him. Or will Ruth act like Tamar, who's mentioned in chapter 4, who just seven generations before Boaz seduced Judah so he could play the role of a redeemer, the very thing Ruth wants from Boaz? Or will Ruth, the foreign woman, act like the proverbial foreign woman of the book of Proverbs, which uh, in the ESV is translated adulteress, who seduces men by the roadside and leads them astray. You see, there, there's this ambiguity at this point. There's a tension in the story. Ruth's reputation is actually on the line here. This does not look good for her. It's open to all kinds of interpretation. And yet Ruth is, is actually not that kind of girl. We've seen that throughout Ruth. Ruth is this up right woman. And the writer goes out of his way after weaving together this ambiguity, he goes out of his way to show Ruth's uprightness. He's not ultimately drawing similarities between Ruth and these other women. He, he's going to contrast them. Uh, for starters, right, there are 14 mentions of, of Moab in the book of Ruth. Right? 14 mentions of Ruth's Moabite heritage in the book. None of them are in chapter 3. Now that's a little odd. Right? You would think they'd be evenly dispersed. But suddenly in chapter 3, he stops mentioning Moab altogether. Why would he do that? 
Well, because suddenly the writer wants to disassociate Ruth from Moab. See, unlike the immoral beginnings of Moab, Ruth is going to remain upright in this story. She is a godly woman. Uh, second, there's this interesting abundance of language in here in this part that echoes the Exodus and, and Sinai. So as we already said, Naomi desires to give Ruth rest, which echoes God's promise to give Israel rest in the promised land from their enemies. Naomi, we're told, wants, to, wants life to go well for Ruth, according to verse 1. God promised Israel if they obeyed, it would go well with them. Again, an echo of that language. Naomi gives her daughter-in-law certain commandments, instructions. Ruth responds in verse 5, all that you say I will do. God gave Israel commandments at Sinai, and how does Israel respond? They said, all that the Lord has said we will do. But then Ruth does something that Israel rarely did in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Right, the writer is using all of this uh, language, echoing the Exodus, to show us actually that Ruth is a much better Israelite than most Israelites. She gets commands and she actually obeys them. And finally, we see Ruth's uprightness in that Ruth does everything her mother-in-law tells her to do, almost. Almost. Ruth doesn't quite do everything her mother-in-law says. Ruth goes down to the threshing floor. She waits for the right moment. She uncovers Boaz's feet. She lies down to wait. He wakes up because his feet are cold. And behold, verse 8, a word which here means, right, what in the world is going on? There's a woman lying at his feet. And he asks the only question that makes sense at the moment, who are you? And here Ruth departs the script. Ruth's actions are actually highly ambiguous. We've said that. Rather than, but, but rather than waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, Ruth clarifies her intentions from the start. Look at verse 9. She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. See, if everything was ambiguous and open to interpretation up to this point, Ruth actually makes it very clear. She is there for one reason and one reason only. She is looking for her redeemer. Now, the language of spreading your wings is actually very important. Now, you can see in the ESV footnote, it could also mean spreading the corner of your garment. But it's explicitly a covenantal language and marriage language. God even uses this language as a metaphor for his covenant with his people in Ezekiel 16. God says he covered uh, his, he spread the corner of his garment over his people as a way of showing that he took them to himself. And so Ruth is here, in one sense, she's, she's proposing. <laughs> she, she's asking not for a one-night stand, but for covenant faithfulness. She wants Boaz to enter into a covenant with her. Regardless of Naomi's intent, which may or may not have been pure, Ruth's intentions were pure. She is seeking marriage, pure and simple. She is pursuing her Redeemer. And Boaz thankfully recognizes this. He says that, uh, and he responds saying that everyone knows she's a worthy woman. Not the foreign woman of Proverbs, which is interesting, but the worthy woman of Proverbs, which if you know the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31 ends with a poem praising the worthy woman. 
And the last phrase of that poem in Proverbs is, let her works praise her in the gates. It's the last phrase of the book of Proverbs. In chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz literally says, all of my people who gather at the gate know that you are a worthy woman. See, he again is explicitly echoing Proverbs 31. Boaz is telling us that far from being the proverbial wicked woman, Ruth is the proverbial picture of feminine godliness. She is the woman of Proverbs 31. And everybody knows it, he says. And yet she's putting that reputation on the line right here. She's, she's, she's putting her reputation as the worthy woman at risk in pursuit of her Redeemer. Now, I'm, I'm drawing a parallel, or I want us to draw a parallel, on some level between Ruth's reckless, from one perspective, pursuit of Boaz, and, and our reckless pursuit of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by reckless pursuit, right? And that sounds really bad. Well, by pursuit of Jesus, I just mean spending your time and your energy and your resources to draw near to Him. By pursuing Him, getting to know Him and love Him and serve Him. That's what it means to pursue Jesus. Spending yourself, spending your energy, spending your time, drawing with Him. But by, by reckless, right, Ruth pursued Boaz without regard for cons the concerns of this world, like her reputation. She, she, didn't, she didn't think about that. She was, she was thinking about her Redeemer. The reckless pursuit of Jesus is, is not... One that's stifled by the concerns of this world, but it's reckless in the world's eyes because it's not overcome by the world's concerns. We're pursuing Jesus regardless of the concerns of this world. Regardless of when the world would say, stop, you shouldn't do that, you get a little out of hand, right? you're, you're excessive, you're, you're sort of a religious fanatic, don't do that. No, we're, we're pursuing Jesus right? regardless of the concerns of this world. We put our Redeemer above worldly concerns. We have a rightly ordered heart where Jesus comes first and everything else is rightly submitted to Him. See, what gets in the way of your pursuit of Jesus? What concerns of this world hinder you from following Him? And maybe it is your reputation, right? You don't want people to know that you go to church or that you attend Bible study because you think they're going to look at you funny. What is it that gets in your way? Maybe it's not your reputation. Maybe it's something else that stops you from pursuing Him. Well, the reckless pursuit of Jesus is not stifled by the concerns of this world. But instead, it actually entrusts those concerns into the hands of Jesus. It entrusts those concerns into His hands. In one sense, we all have the same concerns, and we have the same concerns as everybody else. The difference is, we, we hope to entrust those into the hands of Jesus. We trust that He's going to take care of them. Again, one of the things that stops us from pursuing Him is fear, right? What, what is it going to cost me? What might I lose? Uh, what am I risking if I follow Jesus, if I pursue Him? Maybe we don't ask those questions consciously, but unconsciously we ask them, we answer them. We hold back a little bit from chasing after Him. Why was Ruth so willing so willing to risk her reputation as a worthy woman. How could she be so bold to take that risk, to take that chance? Well, she knew who Boaz was. Right? She knew her Redeemer. She knew that Boaz was her Redeemer. You remember, uh, a Redeemer is a relative, 
was a relative in that culture whose responsibility it was to care for the family who was in need. Right? So if your family members were in need, your job was to redeem them from their trouble. That happened in different ways in Israel. One of those responsibilities was to marry a brother's widow so that children could be raised up in the dead brother's name. According to Boaz, Ruth could have chosen to go off and marry anybody. You know, maybe there were other young men in that field who worked beside Ruth who might have been interested. But Ruth doesn't go after younger men. She, she could have pursued them. She could have gone after them and wouldn't even understand it if she did. But rather than that, Ruth follows God's way of doing things in Israel and she pursues the Redeemer. Boaz is her Redeemer. Which means she, on some level, is his responsibility. He's the family, part of the family. He's the family Redeemer. And so she's going to be bold in pursuing him whatever the cost. But the language of, of chapter 3, verse 9, not only tells us that, that Boaz is her redeemer, look at that language again. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This language actually shows us Ruth's confidence in Boaz. Uh, she knows who he is, he's the redeemer. She also knows his character as a redeemer. Now, where do we see that? Uh, look back at chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz said to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Boaz throughout has been this godly man who has been a blessing to Ruth and Naomi, who has done everything uprightly, who's, who's followed the law and more so. And he said in 2.12 that Ruth had come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And now Ruth is asking Boaz to fulfill those words by giving her refuge. Right? It, it's, it, she's, she's asking him to spread his wing over her. She's taking his words and, and praying them back to him, as it were. Right? You, you want the Lord to... You, you've said that I've come to take refuge under the, the Lord's wings. Okay, Prove it, right? Spread your wing over him, right? You care for me. Ruth knows his character. She's seen it. She's heard his concern for her. She's seen it in the ways that he's provided. And now she's calling him to be who he is. Ruth is placing her faith in God's appointed redeemer. She's trusting Boaz because of who he is, her grace-filled redeemer. Now the Bible teaches, again, that Jesus is our redeemer. Right? To, to, he's come to redeem us, to free us not simply from, from material poverty, right? but to bring us out of spiritual poverty and all that comes with that. To redeem us from sin and death and hell. And Jesus is gracious. The Bible says that on every page. He will turn no one away who comes to him for grace. In fact, if you come to him, he will, he will not only receive you, but he will protect your reputation. And provide the rest that you need. That's what we see in this chapter. And we might think, again, Ruth, think about Ruth. We might think Ruth is being irresponsible. She's risking her reputation on a gamble. I mean, we might even scold her for being unwise or imprudent in her actions. But our critique of Ruth as unwise or imprudent, it comes from what we value, right? We, we want to look good. Uh, we worry about what other people think of us. We spend lots of money on, on clothes to look a certain way and be easily embarrassed when we do stupid things and look bad and know because it happens often to me. And we go out, uh, we go over and over things that we've said. We, we wonder how people uh, took them. We, we wonder whether we could have said them better. We're paranoid that we might be misunderstood or worse. We might be seen for who we really are. 
See, we try to make a good impression. You know, Facebook and Twitter, they really become our means of promoting our reputation, sort of crafting our own little view of ourselves. And the Bible teaches, right? Why do we can use Bible to support this? The Bible teaches that our name or reputation is important, doesn't it? Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. It's important, but it's not ultimate. See, the pursuit of Jesus is stifled when even good concerns of this world, like reputation, good concern in and of itself, when good concerns become ultimate concerns. Right? When good values become ultimate values, your reputation is important. It's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. Jesus comes first. Is Ruth being irresponsible? Look at Boaz's response to Ruth in verse 10. He doesn't rebuke her. He blesses her. He praises her kindness. He mentions her reputation. He promises to do all that he can. And then notice what he does next. He has her get up early in the morning in verse 14. While it's still dark before anyone can recognize her, he tells uh, his men not to tell anyone that she had been there. See, though Ruth has been unconcerned about her reputation, Boaz is concerned for her. He doesn't want gossip about what happened on the threshing floor. And he doesn't ask his friend to lie, but just because something is true doesn't mean it has to be said, and so he, he asks for discretion. Ruth risked her reputation. She cast herself wholly on Boaz's grace, and she found that grace, and he protects her. And don't you know, right, if you cast yourself on Jesus, he will actually protect your reputation better than you can. You know, our reputation is always, it's always full of half-truths, isn't it? I mean, people know you as you want them to know you. If they knew the real you, what would they think? Right? Do you ever worry about that? Do you ever think about that? I do. People really knew what was going on in my mind and heart. And yet the Christian life is pretty risky because the Christian life begins and continues with confessing your sin. Right? With admitting all that's going on in your heart. Letting yourself out there in your particular weaknesses and your sins and your temptations. Ruth's situation is potentially confusing. She may be misunderstood. But if people really knew us, that'd be so much worse than being misunderstood. It would be being known. And of course, ever since Adam's first sin in the garden, the human race collectively has had a bad name, not just with men, but with God. Right? We, we, we not only leave ourselves open to appearing immoral, but we have abandoned God and chased after other things instead. Ruth could have looked to younger men, but she looked to her redeemer, Boaz. We daily look to flashier saviors than Jesus. We look to riches and pleasure and family and self, anything to try to satisfy our emptiness. We stand before God as guilty, rebellious, and unfaithful. But what does Jesus do? If Boaz was compassionate, God is more so. Right? God does not dismiss us with a wave of his hand. He moves toward us in love. God the Son comes into the world and takes our humanity. He takes all we have done upon himself. Our bad name before the Father becomes his. Our reputation becomes his reputation. He becomes sin for us. He takes the name of a liar and greedy and lustful and angry and arrogant and judgmental and lazy and everything else. And then he takes that reputation to the cross. And he puts our reputation with the Father to death. Boaz, Boaz risked his reputation and people found out that Ruth was there that night. But Jesus laid aside his reputation and took on ours. 
And then in exchange for our sin and guilt, He gives us His reputation, right? His perfect righteousness, His perpetual obedience, His faithful love. These are credited to our account, which means they become a part of our reputation before the Father. Because of Jesus, we are given a new name with the Father, a new reputation. You know, you can spend your life trying to craft a certain reputation with the world, hiding the bad bits and emphasizing the good. Or you can cast yourself on Jesus, recklessly pursuing Him, and He will give you a whole new reputation before the Father, one you can never tarnish. And trust yourself into the hands of Jesus. He will do more than protect your reputation. He will give you a new one, one which you can never earn, and one you can never lose. And then there's more than that, isn't there? The story goes on, finally and then briefly, but He will provide the rest that you need. There's a slight complication in Ruth's plans. Chapter 3, verse 12, Boaz informs her there's a closer redeemer. There's somebody else in line. Uh, the laws of redeemers, I guess, are somewhat like the laws of inheritance. If someone's ahead of you in line for the inheritance, only if they refuse to take it or die first, right, does it fall to you. So Boaz tells Ruth, there's someone ahead of him. She has to wait to see what will happen. If he won't redeem her, he will. He gives her this promise. If he won't redeem you, I will. But he doesn't leave her there. He gives her his promise, and then he gives her six full heaps of grain. Right? Now, you, you might wonder why. Why does he do this? I mean, she's been harvesting all summer long. She, she has, if, uh, if her first day is any indication, she has tons of food. And yet he gives her six full heaps of grain. And this grain, I think, from Boaz is, is a sign, it's a symbol, it's maybe even a foretaste of the fullness that Ruth and Naomi long for. And yet it's not seven, right? Seven, you know, it's kind of the, the biblical number of completion. You guys give her seven heaps, uh, scoops full of grain. It gives her six. In Genesis, rest came on the seventh day. Ruth is looking for rest, but it doesn't come yet. She has the promise of redemption, but not the full experience of it. Similar to us in our salvation right now, Jesus has promised us rest, complete blessing in the new creation. We have that promise. We have that hope, but not yet the fullness of the experience. We're, we're in the middle of the story, not the end. Just as Jesus rose, the promise for us is we will rise, and that will be our ultimate rest. And yet we can rest. We can rest now. We can rest in our relationship to the Father. It's secure in Jesus. We can rest in our hope of the fullness of that rest to come at Jesus' return. There are lots of things that distract us from recklessly pursuing Jesus. Maybe it's your reputation. Are you willing to set aside what people think and trust that Jesus has secured your reputation with the only one that truly matters with the Father? Can you trust Jesus to take care of you, to provide for you? Can you stop thinking about yourself and what people might think and just be free to pursue Him and to love others? Here's Jesus' promise, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you want rest, if you want spiritual rest in your relationship with the Father, if you want emotional rest in your worries about life, if you want the hope of the ultimate rest in the heavenly promised land, that rest is found in Jesus, your Redeemer. Recklessly pursue Him, and He will not disappoint. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Jesus. We thank You for our Redeemer. We thank You that He came into the world and took our reputation upon Himself and He took that to the cross. We can find forgiveness we could find reconciliation to our Father, that we could find a new name with you. Oh, Father, help us to pursue.
pursue Jesus with all of our hearts. We confess there are so many things that get in the way. We pray that you would lead those other loves out of our heart. That we would pursue Jesus alone. Help us not to fear, but to know that he will care for us. He will provide. He will not disappoint. Thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.